times, with all the chaos and evil and noise that just keeps raging all around us. Is it noisy out there? Does it seem chaotic? Does it seem like there's evil in our world? If you're feeling that way, good news, you're not the first. God actually knew that there would be times, different points in history, that we would feel this way, which is why he didn't just give us the Bible, but he gave us books like Esther that we're digging into this summer. And today, you're going to see how the tension that's been building and the evil that's been brewing all comes to a head in chapter 7 with the sovereign orchestration of a God in control doing only what he can do and a young orphan Jewish girl being courageous, courageous to do what she can do as she's been thrust into a harem of a wicked world leader. Go to Esther chapter 7. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Esther chapter 7. It's all going to come to a head here. Esther chapter 7 verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. Just to help you out a little bit, I can't review everything we've done. I just hope you've been with us. But this is banquet number 2. As the king said to her, what's your request? She just said, my request is that you would come to a second banquet. Here we are. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? Now finally, Esther's led him along. She's going to say it. A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before, before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. You need to realize culturally they would eat, have banquets and dinners, lying on their side on couches. Here's what you need to understand also when you see what the king does next. In that culture, you were never to be any closer to the queen than seven feet. And you were never to be alone with her. If the king exited, you exit. He should have left. But he knows he's in trouble, so he stayed. And he's falling all over himself and her begging for mercy. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was... The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. 
You've seen movies perhaps where someone's being snatched and they're on their way to die and they put a hood over their head. That's what they would do. They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged, oh, we love endings like this. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Oh, yes, yes. Then the wrath of the king abated. Don't you love it when it turns out like this? Right? That's why I like movies like Equalizer and Equalizer 2 with Denzel. The bad guys get it in the end. A pin in the eye. Oh, yes. If you don't like gore, don't watch it. But oh, if you like seeing good's going to come. Oh, we like it because we're created in the image of God. We want there to be justice. But could we be honest for a minute? Does it always turn out like this? Do the Hamans always get it in the end? Oh, this is not the last wicked person in our world who has power, is it not? And it doesn't always end this way. So here's my question for you, for us. So what can we do about all the evil in our world today? Point number one. Oh, listen to me. Take heart And remember, number one, God can use one person to resist the onslaught of evil in our world. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need a majority. God can use one person to resist the onslaught of evil in our world. You can look through history and see how he does it time and men, women, young, old, weak, strong. God can use one person to resist the onslaught of evil. Oh, as we've worked our way through Esther chapter four, five, six, you can see how God has been using Esther, young orphan girl Esther. But she had to make some decisions, did she not? She had to take some risk and she had to put together a specific plan of action. She didn't just curl up in a ball and shut down when she learned there was an edict of annihilation for her and her entire people. Instead, she called all the Jews to pray and fast for three days along with her and her maids. Then she prepared a royal banquet for her king husband and a second one on top of that. And today, oh, I don't have time for it in this message, but I think about those of you that are in in the practice of law and you're in the courtroom at all. Study this passage, it is brilliant She takes very careful, prayerful, respectful thought to how to approach the king and how to expose Haman's wicked scheme without indicting the king, right? You do realize the king signed this edict. You know, you gotta be careful how you show this because notice how she leads him along and she starts with herself. My request is that my life would be spared. I'm sure he's thinking, what do you mean? No one can hurt you. Someone's after you. She's leading him along. My life and my people. My life and. And then she's very respectful. If all that was being done is that we were going to be made slaves, I'd be silent. 
but we are to be killed. Notice she takes the exact phrasing from the edict. We are to be killed and destroyed and annihilated. And he still doesn't remember because he's always making decisions while he's drinking. He's not thinking and he's drinking and he signs something. This whole book has this guy drinking. And he wasn't thinking, he was drinking, he just signed it. But she doesn't want to indict him. Notice what she's doing. She's leading him along so that he is finding himself saying, what, what? Because he doesn't love her. But you guys, an assault on the queen is an assault on the king. He does love himself and he wants to save face. That's why he's walking in the garden. How do I solve this? It was known in that day when they signed an edict, a Persian edict, it couldn't be changed. It couldn't be revoked. What are we going to do? But she doesn't say, doofus husband, you signed this thing. Remember that? Not wise. So that she's got him saying, who? Who is he? Where is he that would dare do this? A foe and an enemy, wicked Haman. But you do need to realize, she still doesn't know how this was going to turn out, you guys, right? He could have been furious with her, could he not? He could have said, we've been married you realize they've been married five years. We, you've been the queen five years. You didn't think to tell me this. You didn't think I'd want to know that you're a Jew, that you're from the oppressed people that are taken captive, living in our land, that I've married a Jew, that I've made a Jew the queen. He could have been furious at her because we don't know why, but we do know he likes Haman a lot. He made him number two in the land. So she is taking a risk, but she's being very diplomatic and respectful and careful and prayerful how she approaches him and exposes this wicked scheme. So I want you to think what we've seen so far in this book. Yes, you can see the providence of God in keeping a pagan king awake, chapter 6, verse 1, so that he would call for the royal records to be read to him to put him to sleep, so that he would discover Mordecai saved his life and has not been rewarded. Those are the things that only God could do. But I hope you've seen, this book has also showed us to this point, Esther's courageous decisions to risk and keep moving forward and be willing to be used by God, ready, without knowing how it's going to turn out. You realize most of us would say, I am happy to be courageous. Just show me the next 10 to 15 steps. Shed light on it. If I can see it's going to work out, I'm your woman. I'm your man. Let's do this. It's when we don't know that we're like, eh, She doesn't know. That's what I love about the book of Esther, you guys. We've got places in the book like Gideon, right? Gideon's supposed to attack this huge army. And Gideon's like, just let me know you're really with us. Make the fleece wet. It's wet. Mm, Make it dry. It's dry. Still doesn't want to go. He says, Gideon, go down to the camp tonight and listen to a conversation between two of the enemy soldiers. And you'll hear them saying, hey, I just had a dream that Gideon and his little band are going to kill all of us. Finally, Gideon's like, do you feel better? Yeah, I'll go. We all are willing to be courageous when you get all that. It's gonna work out. You get to win, go. Guess what? Today, the day we live in is much more like Esther. She doesn't get a dream that says it's gonna work out. She doesn't get a vision. She doesn't get an angel. She doesn't get a prophetic word from someone. She doesn't get finger writing on the wall. By faith, she has to be willing to risk and keep moving forward to be used by God, without knowing how it's going to turn out. And so if you're thinking now at this point in the book, which is it, Brad? 
Is it that God is sovereign and providentially working things together behind the scenes? Or is it that people like us have to choose to lean in and be courageous? Oh, listen to me. The sovereignty of God and what he does is never, is never a contradiction to the people of God and what he's called us to do. The answer is, is it that God's sovereign and at work or is it that the people of God are willing to do what he's called us to do in this dark world? It's both. It's both. It's both. That's what you see all through the Bible. If you'll read the Bible, how much of it? Say louder. All of it. You'll see the sovereignty of God and then you'll see God calling his people to actually do things to take courage, to risk. Listen to me. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are like two pedals on a bicycle. They go together. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are like two pedals on a bicycle. They go together. They go together. It's both. It's both. It's never either or. God is always advancing his purposes in our world. Ready? And using his people in the process. He's always advancing his purposes in the world and using his people in the process. But we've got some Christians that think and live and talk like it's either or. Both can't be true. It's one or the other. So we've got some Christians that take a sit back and do nothing approach. Their motto is... And I don't see it that often on bumper stickers anymore, but I hated it when I saw it. Let go and let God. Let go. God is God. God is going to do what God is going to do, and he doesn't need you to get it done. It's not what the Bible teaches. So their approach is they tend to wait and do nothing until God drops a ready-made solution in their laps. They don't get up and do anything. But there's another group. There's another group of Christians that swing way over here. And this is what we kind of got a little more today, folks, in America. America. Another group of Christians that swing way over here, and they live with an activist mindset as if it's all up to us. (gasps) If it's going to be done, it's got to be done by us. If we don't do it, how will it happen Because God is depending on us and can do nothing without us. His hands are tied. He's paralyzed unless his people move. Guess what? It's not this and it's not this. You're like, well, what is it? It's what you often see in the Bible, you guys, but we're not happy with it. We love extremes. We love black, white. We don't like gray. We don't like biblical tension. You will find lots of issues in the Bible It's the biblical tension in the middle. You gotta hold to both truths. Is God sovereign? Does he call his people to do things and does he use us in the process? Yes. So it's the biblical tension in the middle. So what you see in the Bible is a balance. You ready? What you see in the Bible is a theological balance of we pray and we take action. We lean on Christ, and we lead others to Christ. We rest in him, and we walk with him. We wait in silence, and we speak the truth in love. Now, if you're confused, you're like, so how do I know when to do which? Here's a lovely truth that I would love for some of you to remember. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. 
Be led by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. That's why we have a Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about spooky stuff. Don't go do stupid things this week. No young man should approach a young woman and say, God told me you're going to marry me. That's not what we're talking about. If she seems surprised, it's probably not of God. He would have told you both. He doesn't like to do that to women. He would prepare her for your coming. So this isn't like I just had pizza and anchovies and I have this strange feeling and so I say weird things to people. God, God said, God, God. But folks, here's what I've recognized. The camp that still holds to the Bible, that would be us. Sometimes throws the baby out with the bathwater and acts like we don't need it. I'm so grateful for a Holy Spirit, you guys. I am so grateful for the inerrant, inspired, timeless word of God. And I'm grateful for a Holy Spirit. He's a person. He lives in me. Third person of the Trinity. He said he would make God's word clear to me. He would give me courage. He would give me conviction. He would help me know when I should stop, when I should wait, when I should be silent, when I should speak the truth in love, when I should walk. When I... He'll help you. Get to know him. He'll help you. And he loves to use the Bible. So be reading your Bible, be praying, and say, God, fill me with your spirit. I want more of him, less of me. More of him, less of me. More of him, less of me. And show me how you want to use me. Pastor Alistair Begg captures this well. News alert to those of you that aren't, aren't married to a pastor. Usually their wife loves somebody else way more. So Vicky doesn't talk about me. Sometimes never even mentions my sermon. Like it never happened. And I have to tell her, it's like a baby. I was birthing this thing, girl. This took 22 hours this week. Say something about the baby. But she listens to Alistair Begg. And she talks about J.C. Ryle, this old guy with a long white beard. Thank goodness he's dead, but I have to worry about Alistair Begg. <laughs> Cleveland is not that far away. It's like, oh, Alistair Begg, is, it's amazing. And I listen, I'm like, okay, what? I think it's the Scottish accent, right? <laughs> You know, that is a huge advantage for a pastor. If you can talk like that, you could read the phone book and change. I was just melted by when he said, so if if I could just start speaking with a Scottish accent a little bit, would lives be changed to the glory of God? I think so, but I'm gonna let it go. Alistair Begg captures it so well when he says, quote, I often meet people whose reaction to the events of life is to sit down somewhere and wait for the Lord to act. This is not a good plan. On the other hand, some people are totally frantic in their endeavors. They're trying to take care of everything as if somehow the destiny of the world, could you insert America, depended upon them. Every so often though, I will meet someone who has grasped the wonder. It is a wonder when you can hold on to both these things. Who has grasped the wonder of this truth. There is about him or her, oh, I like this, a fragrance, a busied restfulness. A busied restfulness because they recognize that the providence of God does not remove them from the realm of responsibility. Mm, A busied restfulness. Let me ask you, what about you? What do you have today? Is it a busied restfulness? Is there a fragrance about you of, yes, I'm doing things. I'm leaning in. I'm taking risks, but I'm not frantic. I'm not doing it as if the world depends on me. A busied restfulness. Or have you been guilty of living in the extreme of either completely 
unengaged. God is going to do what God is going to do. Doesn't matter what I do. Bible doesn't teach that. He has us here for such a time as this. <gasps> or are you way over here? absolutely frantic as if, oh my goodness, if we don't get this done, it's not gonna happen. All of history will go off the rails on a new course it never should have been on. Folks, when you read your Bible, how much of it? And you see the sovereignty of God providentially at work and you trust that. And you see how he calls his people to lean in and do courageous things you could have a busied restfulness. And I like how Alistair Begg used the word fragrance because there's actually a verse in the Bible that talks this way also. This is bonus. Not in your outline. You might want to write it down. 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus and spreads through us the fragrance of the knowledge of God in every place. Do you, real, do you realize, God, guys, wherever we go, grocery store, gym, neighborhood, marketplace, job, campus, we shouldn't just look different, you guys. We should smell different. There ought to be a fragrance because you know God. You rest. You have hope. You're kind. You're sweet. Fragrance. Oh, we got some smells today, right? There's the smell. Call it a stench of anger. Fear, conspiracy, suspicion, panic. We need someone to show up wearing a different fragrance, okay? Christians should show up and they should say, what just happened as you joined our conversation? What just happened? I smell something different. A busied restfulness. They'll hear you talking about things you're doing. You may be writing letters. You may be doing any number of things, but it's not frantic. It's a busied restfulness. That will make a difference because then they'll also say, what is it you have I don't have? Why are you like this? Tell me about the hope that you have. But since we're talking about evil, I want you to see how number two, God did the only thing that could ever triumph over evil in this world. I hope you realize, I hope this doesn't discourage you, but right Every time we lean in and are courageous and take a risk and God might be pleased to use us to resist the onslaught of evil, all you do is slow it down, right? All you do is hit pause because it just picks back up. God can use us to resist the onslaught of evil, to hit pause, to slow it down, but we don't have the power or authority to conquer and triumph over evil. God did that. And he did it at the cross. I know Dave last week in his sermon read this passage. Excellent sermon, by the way. Was that not a great sermon? Woo. He read it, but I want you to go there again because it captures better than any other passage what I'm trying to tell you here. Go to Colossians chapter two, verse nine. Colossians chapter two, verse nine. Here's what God did to triumph over evil that we cannot do. We cannot do this. This is what God did. Colossians 2, 9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's talking about Jesus. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You realize Jesus is no longer sweet, gentle, baby Jesus in a manger. That's where he started. Jesus has all rule and authority. He's talking about over this universe, over civil authorities, over the demons and Satan, 
all rule and authority is not with God's people. It's with God's son. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's saying in the Old Testament, the Jews had a fleshly circumcision that set them aside. Now as new covenant believers, he circumcises our heart. He cuts away that dead, dead heart so that we can have a flesh that's alive to the things of God. We've been awakened to something bigger and eternity to something outside of this world. He does that when you put your faith in Jesus. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him. How did all this happen? Two words next. Through what? Not works. You don't earn it. You don't try to achieve it. You don't try to keep the 10 commandments through faith through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven you. What's the next word? Say it again. Say it like it happened to you. All. Oh, that's such good news. Never mind the stock market. Never mind your investments. Never mind any of all that. All your sins have been forgiven. On your very worst day, you should have joy and hope and be rejoicing that your biggest problems been solved. All trespasses. How did he do that? He's gonna tell you in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against it. You realize as a sinner, you had a sin debt and that debt meant death. You, would, you were to spend eternity in hell for your sin. I should spend eternity in hell for my sin, separated from a holy God. That was the debt, and that debt was canceled on the cross, canceling the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You realize the worst part about the crucifixion was not the spikes in his hands or feet, not the spear in his side, not the crown of thorns, not the torn open, ripped to shreds back from the scourging. All that was horrific. But unlike anyone else who ever died of crucifixion, and there were thousands in that day who died by crucifixion, he's the only one that also had all of our sin placed on him and the wrath of a holy God poured out on him instead of us. That's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's why he cried out, it is finished. Not I'm finished, but this huge sin problem, I just paid the debt. But here's what else happened. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's not talking now about Herod the Great or Felix or Pilate. He's talking about spiritual Satan and demons and powers. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Satan is a defeated foe. He's still raging. He's still a roaring lion. He still tries to intimidate us and destroy us. But he has ultimately already been defeated and his ultimate authority has been taken from him. That happened on the cross. We can't do that. God did what only he could do to triumph over. And so now, here's where we're living. God, if you're saying, when's God gonna do something about this? When's he gonna do something about this evil? He has at the cross. 
and he will at his second coming bring about the final ultimate consummation of it all and so we get to be his people who live between the already and the not yet he's already done what needed to be done but he's not yet returned why so that more people to come faith in christ you guys if all you're doing right now is raging when is he going to judge evil when is he going to vanquish when is he going i hope you realize when he does that And he's going to. Millions of people will go to hell forever. Some of them that I love dearly. Dearly. I hope some that you love dearly. Some of your neighbors, your coworkers, your adult children, your mom, your dad. Those that don't know Christ. Those that live in Iraq and other places. That's why we go. That's why we're here to be salt and light and give this good. In the meantime, God is not absent-minded. God is not like, has he lost his train of thought? God loves this world so much. He delays so that more may be brought into the family of God. And he has us here to be used to proclaim this good news. So if you've gotten derailed and you're on to something else as if it's the most important thing, I beg you to come back to why he has us here. He has us here. And the end is coming soon. Judgment is coming. Evil will be vanquished. And you say, okay, well, if God has done the only thing that could be done to triumph over evil... What are we supposed to do now? Is there anything for us to do? Glad you asked. Yes. Point number three. Ready? God has us here now. Oh, buckle up. Because this is not going to sound like what you would have thought. To overcome evil with sad. And you're like, oh, you're kidding. That sounds so lame. Good. I want to kick some butt. I want to yell and scream. I want to, I want to be Denzel. I know, it, Jesus gets to be Denzel at the end. We are supposed to overcome evil with good. He doesn't leave us to just sort out. What, what do you think you want to do? And have committee meetings. Let's do it this way. In fact, he's very specific. Go to Romans chapter 12. God didn't want us to wonder how we should be living right now. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And I hope you're seeing, do you see how good the Bible is? Isn't it like, uh, wow, this is helpful for today. It really is. I would encourage you to read it for yourself on days other than Sunday. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Now, he's not talking about some just fuzzy feeling that lands on you like a country song and then leaves and you have to throw the ring across the room and find someone else. This is the word agape. Let Agape love. Ooh, let me help you here. There were, three, there were three or four Greek words for love. Philadelphia, storge, agape. Agape is a love that, it means sacrificially giving of yourself for the good of someone else. Sacrificially, it costs you. Sacrificially giving of yourself for the good of someone else expecting nothing in return. You're like, oh my word, I don't think I could do that. You're right, you can't. That's why the Holy Spirit's in you. It's supernatural. But he says, this is what I want you doing. Let it be genuine. 
Do we need more of this kind of love in our world? Huh. What we got right now is everyone demanding their rights, protecting themselves, defending themselves, promoting themselves, attacking others who, whew, let love be genuine. Now, you're going to like this next phrase, abhor what is evil. So he doesn't want us to settle down and say, oh, there's so much evil now, I'm just numb to it. Frog in the kettle kind of thing, right? No, don't let that happen. Abhor what is evil. That word abhor means to find it repugnant, to be repulsed, to be horrified. Don't lose that. Say, oh, problem. As we're horrified and repulsed, we tend to think, here's how I would respond to something that horrifies me. And there's where we get it wrong. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful. Be fervent in spirit. So again, He rebukes the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation for being what? He said, I want to spew you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. He wants us to be fervent for him in love, in overcoming evil with good. Fervent for him. That word right there is a word in the Greek that means to boil over and bubble up. Not with rage, not with panic, but with zeal. And love. And now watch this. Serve the Lord. Verse 12. Rejoice. He's going to give us a trifecta. Here's what we're supposed to be about now. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. If you're wondering, what should I be doing right now? There you go. You should still be rejoicing despite how evil things look. Why? Because your hope is fixed in something outside of this world. Not here. Rejoice in hope. (gasps) Patient in tribulation. How are you going to do that? Holy Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? If you're filled with the Spirit and he's controlling you more than you controlling you, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. We need some more Christians to have the Holy Spirit controlling them instead of blogs and internet and their friends. Patient in tribulation. Oh, do this constant in prayer. So that's that piece where you recognize God is sovereign and there's things he has to do that I could never do. Therefore you pray. Sometimes pastors call me and, I, and they say, I hear you pray and you take, I don't know why they don't. But what I think it is, is they think they can do it. When you know you can't do it and you believe in the sovereignty of God, you pray. Tomorrow I'll have a day of prayer and fasting, Lord willing, if I don't die before then. Why do I still go away on a day of prayer and fasting? Because I know I can't do this. This is more than I can do. So, and I'll come, but I don't just stay out there and sit cross-legged for weeks and home and just let go and let God. He'll take care of the church. No, I'm gonna come back Tuesday and have meetings at the wazoo. And I'm doing some things, but I'm trying to have this busied restfulness. One of the ways you display that is you hit pause and you say, all of Monday when I could have been doing a ton of stuff. Do you think I come back and, have, I come back and I'm behind, quote, but it's worth it because I just unburdened my heart to a sovereign God who has all power and wisdom. And I just made a bold statement to him that shows humility. I need you. And I need my heart to be reoriented lest I start thinking it all depends on me because I don't want to become that activist freaking out kind of busied restfulness. Busied, restfulness. 
constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Watch this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one. There's no exception, you guys. I keep hearing Christians say, but right now, Brad, you don't understand. But now, but now, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Whew. Now he's going to hit it even head on. If, if in your heart you have this, you're created in the image of God, but if I don't pay them back, how's this going to happen? Will things be made right? Will justice be done? Verse 19. Verse 19, beloved, never, say it with me, say that word, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You realize every time you step in and you decide to repay repay evil for evil or take revenge, you're actually taking something from God. He says that's mine. Vengeance is mine. I will you get in his lane. You get in his parking spot. He's not giving you the authority or power or permission to do it. And the main thing we mess up is timing. It's coming. We want it now. He loves this world more than you do and I do. And so he's waiting. He's waiting. He says, don't do that. Don't repay evil for you. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. Now he quotes Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He said, well, then what should we do? Verse 20, to the contrary. So he's letting you know, I'm about to tell you what you should do, and it's going to sound the opposite of what you want to do, because what you want to do is actually God's job. Don't do God's job. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. What I think is interesting about verse 20 is when he calls us to love our enemies and overcome evil with good, there's a lot of specificity there. It's not just, well, I'm just going to choose not to hate them and rail against them. They should be glad that I just haven't snatched their little ever-loving head off. Now I'm really pleasing God. Nope. You lean in. If they're hungry, you feed them. Are you kidding? You feed a Democrat? Mm Mm-hmm. You feed them. Yeah, I just stepped in it. You feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them a drink. I mean, whoever that group is that you think is awful, you feed them, you give them something to drink. Oh. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, say it, good. Here's what I want you to see from this passage. Number one, letter A, it matters how you fight. We've got Christians today, I know, it's awful. We need to get in the game, but they act like any way we'll do it. Just recognize there's a fight, there's a war, it's dark, it's bad, go! Bible doesn't talk that way. It matters how you fight. And so in verse 21, he says, I'm gonna give you not the weapons of the world, I want you to overcome evil with good good, radically different. And then he says, oh, I want you number letter B. It matters where you start. There's something that has to happen in our heart first or we'll never be able to do it this radically different way. And you see that in the Bible a lot. Heart, 
determines actions. And so he actually says, in a matter of words, start by seeing yourself as part of the problem instead of outside of it. It might be surprising to you where he starts and says, think about this, but he goes back to and puts his finger on one of our most pervasive and deeply rooted sins that we face in this world. What is that? One of the most pervasive, deeply rooted sins we're afflicted with. Pride. Pride. And so he says, start by seeing yourself as part of the problem. Look, he touches on it in verse 3 and 16. I didn't read verse 3, but look at it. Verse 3, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but think with sober judgment. Jump down to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Why would God thump, I mean, why would God through Paul thump this whole thing of pride in a passage about fighting evil? What's the connection? Let me help you. Because until you see yourself as part of the problem, instead of outside of it looking on, you'll never have the humility necessary to love others, to forgive others, and to overcome evil with good. You see, when you don't have humility, you're always saying, I'm better, they're the bad people. I would never do what they are doing. Those people, those people, those people. You realize this amazing cluster of radical responses, love, sacrificially giving for someone else at a cost to me. Forgiving, that really hurt, that cost me. Maybe that changes my life, what you did to me, but I'm gonna forgive. Overcoming evil with good instead of paying it back. This amazing cluster of radical responses, look at me, all rest on and require massive amounts of humility. When you're prideful, right? When you're prideful, you find yourself regularly saying, and I hope this isn't you, I never, how how could they? When you carry on like that, even if you don't say it out loud, you reveal that you do not have enough self-awareness of who you really are. And you certainly don't see yourself the way, do you realize when God looks down here, he sees us as way more like these people, whoever you think, than different. Our heart has the same capacity. You're not in a different category. Better would never. And if you keep thinking that, you will not. So if some of you are struggling to love today, to forgive and to overcome evil with good, I would ask you to back it up and take a step back and say, what's going on in your heart? Do you have humility? Do you see yourself as a wretched sinner in need of a savior who but for the grace of God could and would be doing these very same things? The things that are being done to you, you could do them apart from the grace of God. Mm. But here's, here's what you need to understand. It often takes a calamitous event that cuts our feet out from under us for us to have this self-awareness of humility. I wish I could get it from a book. I love to read books, but you don't just read a book about humility and like, I'm humble. Read that book last year. 
it's usually created and comes about when your feet have been kicked out from under you and you have an awareness of, oh, I am no better than them. I am just like them. Alexander Sotsenitsyn, I hope that's a name you know, was a decorated commander in the Russian army, but towards the end of World War II, they imprisoned him for speaking out against Joseph Stalin and the horrors of communism. And everything about that gulag prison work camp was as horrible as you could imagine. He wrote a three-volume book describing what he went through. Horrible. But guess what? Guess what? He says something good happened in his heart in that prison camp. In his eight years in a gulag prison camp, in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, he says, God gave me a striking insight into the reality of human nature. And you might think, yeah, I bet that these people are horrible. These people that are abusing you are horrible. That's actually not what happened. That happened to some And then you just become a bitter victim. It's not what happened to Alexander. Listen, and I quote. He says, it was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load. This essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. He's saying those evil people are not out there somewhere. We are those people. Your heart, the line between good and evil passes right through the heart of every human being. When you begin to say, I know I could be doing the same things, treating people the same way, thinking the same way, you begin to humble yourself and love them instead of hate them, and forgive them, and overcome evil with good. And this is what Jeremiah was talking about, this self-awareness about the condition of our heart. Don't go around thinking you're so good, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. One of the number one things that deceives us about is our condition. I'm good. I'm good. God did good to have me on his team. I was barely lost. Praise God, I haven't been immoral and I haven't snorted cocaine and I haven't. The heart is deceitful above all. And, oh, he pushes it some more. And desperately what? Wicked. Not good. Not inclined towards righteousness. Wicked. It's the grace of God that chased you down and snatched you and opened your blind eyes and took out a heart of stone and revealed, why did you find Jesus and the gospel beautiful when others have heard this same message? Don't dare think I'm smarter. I just responded, duh, God saved you. Or you would be just like these confused, lost people. Love them, forgive them, overcome evil with good and have an opportunity to point them to someone besides yourself. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He says, start by seeing yourself as part of the problem instead of outside of it looking on. Then he says, start by learning to love each other. Look at verse 10. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. You realize some of the problem we have right now going on with Christians and the church is that we keep expecting, I thought this would be nirvana. I thought this would be my safest place on earth. I can come here and everybody thinks like me and I'm either easy to love. I would have chosen all of you for a friend. Not. Some of you are hard for me to love. I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. But God brought you here as a gift to me. It's your gift. You may not have any other gift, but you help people have to learn to love. Ooh, there's you. I'm gonna have to reach down deep. I'm gonna have to rely on the Holy Spirit. That's what happens in church, but we got Christian Americans exiting left and right trying to find that church where everyone thinks the way they do politically and I'll be okay. Guess what? You're gonna divide up over the little menusa and they're gonna hate each other. Wherever you go, it's gonna be a problem because guess what he meant the church to be? He meant it to be a greenhouse, a practice field for learning how to love. You realize God actually knows we're not good at this? We're not. We're great at loving ourselves. We're not good at loving others. So he's like, practice here. Because, oh my goodness, this is not easy. And if you can't do it here with other believers that love Jesus, how are you ever going to do it out there? with people who marginalize you, mock you, and might even try to harm you. He's like, start by seeing yourself as part of the problem. Start by learning to love, and then, and only then, let her see. He pushes it out and says, now radically love those outside the church who do evil against. If you're failing in loving brothers and sisters, I guarantee you, you're absolutely failing in loving your enemies out there. Love. Love, love. And that leads to my final point. God alone. We're in the, in between the already and the not yet. God alone is the one who will bring it all to an end. Who will vanquish evil. Who will bring justice. Absolutely. Justice. It's not our job. And so if you're struggling today, let me show you. One of the great things about the Bible is You know, Esther didn't get a message saying it's going to work out. Guess what? This whole thing that we're in right now, we're like, where's this all headed? What's going to happen? I don't have a book of the Bible that gives you details for America for the next three decades. But I got something really encouraging. News alert. He wins. We know how this is ending. I love it when I watch a a football game that I pre-recorded. I don't mind knowing that we win. Especially when it's going so poorly in the first three quarters. I enjoy watching it because I'm like, we're going to win. This is going to work out. That's what we have because of Revelation. Never mind trying to figure out, is that a helicopter? Is that Putin? Is that Biden? He never gave us Revelation to put names and all that. In fact, he said, don't do that. I'll tell you what, we do have some amazing worship scenes and some absolutely clear passages that says, God is going to judge evil, make all things right, and bring about a new heaven and a new earth. That thing you're longing for, it's not going to happen through human beings. It's going to happen through God. So I want to invite you to stand because I'm going to read some of this because it's great big God stuff that we're going to be reading. So go to Revelation chapter 6 because I want you on your feet. Here's why. You're going to see some passages that show you our world loves to talk about God as love and he is. Guess what? God is also awesome and to be feared and he's a God of wrath and he is going to judge evil. That's also our God. Revelation chapter six, beginning in verse 10. 
These people speaking in verse 10, these are martyrs, you guys. Christians who were killed for the name of Jesus. They cried out with a loud voice, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long, how long before you'll judge an avenger? You think you're frustrated by saying, how long will we have politics that I don't like? How about you've been killed? You were martyred or you watched your husband or your children or your wife martyred. Then you'll be saying, how long? God, when are you gonna make it right? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is not a verse you find on little coffee mugs in the Christian bookstore. This verse is actually saying everybody that is going to die for the name of Christ has not yet died. Some of us may have the opportunity, I don't know, to die for Christ. There are more Christians who are going to die for Christ. Skip to chapter 16, verse five. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Oh, listen, he's gonna give wicked people what they deserve. It's coming. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Skip to verse 17 of Revelation 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there'd never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. He's referring to Babylon. And Babylon in the book of Revelation represents this evil world system that lives for everything but God. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Jump to Revelation 19 verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Say it with me, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Again, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us, we're the bride. Skip to verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes War. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. Who is that? Jesus. No longer humble, baby, gentle Jesus. He's coming back. And he has all authority and power to make things right. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of where it's all headed to give us heart and hope. And then thank you for not leaving us to sort out and decide 
what we would do right now, what our priorities should be and what our strategy should be. You've told us and it's radical, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us direct access to your throne. You've given us each other. God, use us to be your people for such a time as this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.